On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Um, front pages are fairly budget-centric, as you would expect two days out from a budget the size of the one that the government is compiling. Uh, so let's start the tour of the Sunday papers with the one front page that does not concern the budget, although it is still a government spending story. Um, that is the Mail on Sunday today, which tells us that the final cost of the National Children's Hospital is set to be worth well north of €2 billion. Euro. And the massive final bill has less to do with pandemic-related delays and construction inflation, we're told, than the fact that contracts were awarded before plans were completed. It comes as pressure mounts on Stephen Donnelly and Robert Watt over a lack of transparency on the costs. Public Accounts Committee Chairman Brian Stanley has been sharply critical of the ongoing refusal of Robert Watt to provide to the committee with sufficient information on the live status of the current budget. Effectively, what this all amounts to, though, is that there are contractors working on the job today, according to one construction executive, who don't have a design. Uh, The source says that when he was working on the project, he was sitting in an office and there were lots of people on the job and they didn't have a design and they were already on site. He said the design issues were at the heart and the root cause are a lot of the problems on that job. Plus, the original allowances, a lot of it wasn't designed. So you had quantity surveyors making assumptions and putting figures against things, which turned out to be completely wrong. Not wrong because they didn't know, but because when the design was actually done, the level of finish, the cost would have spiralled in comparison to the original estimates. It was always going to. This person adds, if you design an external facade that's completely curved and made of glass, you're only asking for trouble. It was never going to come in remotely close to the original figures. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to know that. Anyone who gives an answer is basically just lying to you. It's not a figure anyone could give with any science whatsoever. Uh, So that's the uh, the very uplifting story on the front page of the Mail on Sunday. Uh, Plenty of other stories about government spending, but that is, of course, all uh, ordinarily about the budget. Uh, Sunday Independent today. The government will unveil an unprecedented 14 billion euro budget package on Tuesday. Uh, but ministers were last night scrambling to agree business energy supports, relief for renters, cuts to childcare costs and welfare increases. The Sunday Independent reveals that significant problems have emerged with a new business energy support scheme, which is going to be known as BESS, another acronym for us to get our heads around. And there's a row between the Departments of Finance and Housing over how many people are renting and that's holding up plans for new rent relief. Uh, the budget is going to include 3 billion in one-off cost of living measures, 6.7 billion euro in tax cuts and spending measures for next year and is also going to be four and a half billion euro held in reserve for covid brexit and ukraine contingencies but many items are still not agreed there are a lot of holes in the current proposal for that best scheme uh, which would be revenue administered trying to help retail hospitality manufacturing and other high energy users with their bills this winter revenue knows everyone's turnover said one source but revenue don't know everyone's energy bills and it's also been pointed out that some business customers will have already negotiated flat rate energy bills and therefore are insulated from some of the current surge in the cost of electricity while other businesses are obviously struggling and that's the reason why there has to be a little bit more finesse done on trying to figure out how that scheme is going to work. Um, also on the front page of the Sunday Independent, a photograph of some of the estimated 20,000 people who showed up at the Cost of Living March in the centre of Dublin yesterday. We're told the protesters said they were concerned at galloping energy costs and household electricity bills, uh, as well as grocery bills and the scale of the housing crisis. Uh, no official attendance figures were available. Organisers claim more than 20,000 people marched from Parnell Square to a gathering behind Leinster House. Uh, it was the largest uh, demonstration since the anti-water charge protests in 2014 and 2015. Organisers are now also announcing a series of nationwide dispersed local demonstrations to take place uh, in the middle of November. 
Uh, front page of the Business Post businesses to receive 1 billion euro in energy bill support scheme this is more about those plans to try and help businesses through the uh, rising energy costs the government is focusing on immediate measures in Tuesday's budget to help businesses survive the winter but there are concerns that the energy crisis could continue into next year we're told the scheme being finalised this weekend will attempt to save jobs by requiring any firm that avails of it to retain their staff businesses will also be required to implement climate and energy efficiency initiatives Uh, various iterations of the scheme are still being examined but the upper range of options being considered would cost more than 1 billion euro in supports to run into the early part of next year that will take the total value of the cost of living package to be announced alongside the budget to 3 billion euro Um, also on the front page of the business post a few other uh, non-budgetary stories a long-awaited wave of corporate insolvencies is now materialising across the country and could wipe out hundreds of businesses before the end of the year, experts tell the Business Post. Uh, and also we learned that the government must urgently put in place a fit-for-purpose policy framework for the development of the offshore wind sector in Ireland, according to an industry body. That comes after Shell, the multinational energy giant that everyone will know, uh, has announced that it is pulling out of the Irish renewables market in a potentially significant blow to Ireland's climate ambitions. A senior industry source said Shell was leaving because it wants to focus its efforts on countries with more more accommodating legislative frameworks. Uh, I don't know whether that means that it believes that Ireland is just too bureaucratic or that other countries are better set up, uh, but there you go. Um, and finally, for now, the Sunday Times, where the Taoiseach has promised a package of measures to benefit both landlords and renters in next Tuesday's budget. Uh, Michal Martin confirmed while in New York attending the UN General Assembly that the government is taking action over concerns about the number of landlords leaving the rental market. He says, we are worried about the hemorrhaging of a lot of houses from the market in terms of landlords wanting to sell. So that's an issue we're examining. Thousands of properties have left the market in the last five years and that's something we need to address. For renters equally, there's a broad level of support that would be available. Around half of renters benefit from the housing assistance payment and RAS, but the other half don't. So we are examining measures to assist those renters. It's expected that although renters and landlords will be given tax credits, the benefit for landlords will be limited to those who are willing to offer their tenants security in five or ten year leases. Um, That is your tour of what's on the front pages of this morning's papers. Join in studio to discuss those and more by Elaine Lachlan, who's Deputy Political Editor of the Irish Examiner, and Jared Howland, Political Commentator, former Government Advisor and Public Affairs Consultant. Uh, you're both very welcome. Um, Elaine, I'm going to start with yourself because this is the time of the year when people in our line of work tend to be flat out to the mat trying to, to piece together the last little bits of rumour. Um, I can't quite figure out whether this is a budget that's been so telegraphed in advance that there's almost little to put on the little meat to put in the bones now or whether actually they're now dealing in sums so big that people like you or I can't really begin to get our heads around what's going to be in there. It may be a bit of both, but certainly we were talking before we went into studio here about the fact that we have had so many flyers so far in advance of the budget that, as you said, Gavin, there's very little uh, to give away uh, or to... to Mm. Uh, recount in the papers today it's really about the the nitty gritty of it now and I I suppose we may be frantic as journalists but I think both Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath will be even busier (laughs) today and tomorrow trying to to nail down some of those issues and I think the um, Hugh O'Connell in the Sunday Independent today has a lot of detail on those last minute negotiations especially around the rent issue which Mm. I think people would be surprised by for a number of issues because if you remember back to last year's budget, there was a lot of anger immediately after mm. that, that there were There's no for measures yeah. for renters, even though the cost of rent has been increasing year after year, despite those uh, measures that have been introduced by the government to try and limit the increases in rent. Um, so it's something that you would have imagined would have been on the government's radar from very early on mm. in putting together a budget. 
And then the second issue is the Department of Finance is concerned that the Department of Housing don't actually know the number of renters out there. Which, which the, the mind boggles on that one, but that appears to be at the crux of why they can't nail it down. So basically they, yes. they don't appear to be able to cost whatever measures there are because they don't know how many people would benefit from it. Exactly. And when we're more than a decade into a housing crisis now and we've had two significant uh, housing plans from this government and the last government on how to tackle both the rent crisis, the housing crisis, uh, that they simply don't know who they're dealing with or how many people they're dealing with is quite astonishing you, to be you, honest with you. You surely think, Jared Howland, that in a state that has fairly well-resourced revenue commissioners, fairly well-resourced RTB, both would probably argue that they could use more resources, but that it's not beyond the wit of man to figure out how many people in the country are tenants or at the very least how much is paid uh, in rent and therefore you could figure out how much a tax credit would, would cost you presume pretty easily. Well, it, it's a bit more complicated than it seems. I mean, the revenue, our revenue is one of the best in Europe. Uh, they have had significant investment in terms of IT and they are pretty good, but there are limits to their reach. There's also critically importantly limited their function. Uh, and this is really important to remember. Uh, as, a fun- as a function of the state, they're there to collect taxes, not impose charges. Um, in order for them to have the trust that they enjoy, it is important that they are not used, abused willy-nilly by governments coming and going to do things outside their remit. And they're very, mm. very keen and tough mm-hmm. around that. L- like what? So are you suggesting that something around this would be beyond their remit or that using them to try and figure out the number of renters in the country would be beyond their scope or beyond their, their stated well, purpose? Well, certainly imposing uh, charges as distinct from taxes. For example, a media charge, if there ever had been one and okay. they won't, right? That would be mm-hmm. a classic example of something that revenue would say, well, it may or may not be a good idea from a policy mm-hmm. perspective, mm-hmm. but it's definitely not one for us. And then in terms of how information is used, to either target um, payments or target uh, charges. Um, the, the administration of the data quickly to allow things to be done that efficiently, I think, overestimates their capacity. Um, we do have other bodies, though, as well. Revenue are not the only players here. You know, we have a CSO. We had a, uh, a census uh, recently but enough But the CSO well. could tell us totals. Uh, the CSO can't tell, you know, they can tell us total figures, but they can't tell, Lane, what you or I are at. Mm-hmm. But if the, if the CSO where is we're capable at of, in terms of, of our situation. But the CSO is capable of producing a national rent index, which is supposed to be a statistically robust indicator of how much people are actually paying in rent, as distinct to surveys of asking charges, like to which you get from daft.e. So again, one presumes that they've got the means to figure out if they're producing a good, reliable figure for how much people are renting. They must know how many people are also renting, you'd have thought. You'd have thought, but obviously the Department of Finance and the Department of Housing do have an issue with this and don't seem to agree on how many people will be entitled to um, mm. the tax measures if they are announced uh, on budget day. And by the day. way, the last uh, cash for ash type scheme that the state <laughs> invented, and we're now, we're now on the verge, by the way, of inventing several more on basis of reading today's papers. But if you go back to circa 2002 and the, the medical cards for the over 70s, you would have thought we know who's over 70. It would have been reasonably simple to, uh, to mm. define who was over 70. Mm. And we got it spectacularly wrong in terms of the scale of eligibility for over 70 medical cards. Uh, very true. Um, Elaine, 
there's, there's plenty of coverage uh, across several headings in the papers um, about today's budget. Anything that jumps out for you? You mentioned Hugh O'Connell's piece already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think just even to pick up on on an issue around revenue, their function and what they should be asked to do, that seems to be coming into play again with another one of the budget measures and that's this uh, electricity or energy Mm. uh, subsidy for businesses. While revenue know the turnover of businesses, they don't know how much each business is paying in electricity or fuel um, or energy. So there, there are significant difficulties only two days out from the budget around this what will be a significant Mm. scheme and even Hugh O'Connell again is saying that um, officials, government officials are struggling to classify what an SME would be as well if they're looking at only providing supports to SMEs do you go on the number of employees or do you go on turnover and that will be significant as well um, in Mm. relation to who gets it. Ultimately we do only have a few days to go and this will be probably a bit of a rushed measure and you'd imagine businesses perhaps who don't necessarily need the support may get it a bit like we saw in COVID um, and others perhaps may be left out you'd Mm. hope that wouldn't be the case and if you're still involved making (coughs) major policy decisions as distinct from tweaks on Sunday afternoon Mm. before budget on Mm. Tuesday the chances of getting it badly wrong are rapidly increasing by the nanosecond it it, it reminds me a little bit of transfer deadline day and you have clubs that are suddenly flaring around going oh we need a striker and then spending over the odds for someone who doesn't fit your squad's profile or doesn't sort of manage to to fit into your uh, your style of play at all Um, one of the thing that, that strikes me about um, Hugh O'Connell's piece, a very extensive read on, on page 10 of today's um, Sunday Independent um, where he is, you know, he, he lists out all the various uh, departments and what they're all looking for but he, he remarks that uh, one minister said that um, if you're not in a cost of living department, so to speak, that if, if you're in a department that doesn't sort of directly engage with, you know, payouts to, to members of the public or if you're not involved in that area of society um, it's tougher than it may have been in previous years. Now, you look at the, the figures, Hughes front page piece says 14 billion, but subtract the COVID reserves, the Brexit reserves, the Ukraine reserves, subtract the cost of living package. It's still a budget where you're injecting 6.7 billion euro more into society. And I find it hard to credit, Jared, that a budget which, if you measured it by anyone else's measure, would still be 6.7 billion. It's an awful lot of money to be putting back in well, there. I that they ex- still think it, that it's tough going. I can explain this very simply. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> if you're a spending department of any kind, right, uh, everything you do is immediately uh, put into your foundations. Is you immediately develop new plans for more, whether you're giving out direct grants on a vast scale to the public, such as an energy, 200 mm. euro energy payments, or whether you're a Department of Defence or Foreign Affairs or whatever, whatever it is, the whole dynamic and DNA of government is to expand exponentially. Uh, they've never, ever, except when brutally forced in extremists, and that's really only happened twice in, in my adult life, uh, to cut back. Uh, and then it's done so brutally, you know, yeah. the consequences are horrible. They are absolutely incapable of facing down their own sectors. The senior civil service and minister in every department has a vested interest to A, hold the line, mm. never look for reductions or savings, yeah. and B, expand, mm. because it's about somebody's political trajectory. And I apply that as much to the permanent government in the departments who actually know mm. what's been spent as as much to ministers who may or may not know what's actually been spent in their name. But if the, if the amount of actual public spending, even the core stuff, is increasing by, I think the figure is about mm. five and a half billion. Mm. Just the idea that they would say, oh, it's tough going now. We can only get five, like there's only five and a half but billion But this is the around. culture 
which then, of course, expands into the media, into the public conversation, where people are entertained for weeks about we should have this, that and the other, and almost never asked the cost, the opportunity cost, the ultimate cost of payment in taxes over years. The whole public conversation from the inside out is suffused with a complete utter madness that is unmoored to reality in terms of that all spending ultimately must be supported by taxes. Mm. But there's no there's no willingness to address this. There is a firm belief that's completely false, that there's something called government that is disconnected either from the economy or from the people that A, has a, wi- uh, has a capacity and B, has a duty to provide for every need when of course it has mm. neither. Uh, do you think, just by the way, before I go back to Elaine and ask her for any other thoughts on, on pieces that jump out in the papers, do you think COVID has changed that, that COVID has now created this this expectation where people think mm. the state is all powerful and, well, and can reassign stuff radically beyond ways they thought before? I think COVID has hugely inflated that. Mm. I don't think it began it. I also think another, uh, and perhaps I'm off the ball here, but I do think social media, uh, the, instanta- the instantaneity of our culture, uh, and the fact that we are all, uh, you know, on social media, we press this, we press that and stuff happens. There is a culture now of instantaneity where everything is possible or deemed possible. And that feeds in or is in, 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 on a twin track with the political culture. And, and there's nobody has any sense of things not being possible and done instantly. Even the conversation we've just had here at the start of this programme about suddenly manufacturing bulletproof schemes to the, deliver billions of, mm. of money cumulatively in this way, that way, the other way, that's never even done before, but get it organised in two or three weeks, get those mm. revenue commissioners on the job, assume it'll be done right yeah, and well. no, we won't have mm-hmm. reason to complain afterwards that our money was wasted again as it mm. was wasted in all those other cockamamie schemes mm. as well. Um, so even our own conversation, Gavin, <laughs> Led by yourself. Mm. Um, not my fault. Yeah, not at all. Uh, about to be cancelled instant- instantaneously uh, over the course of the uh, next ad break. Before I go to that, uh, Elaine, anything else just for now? The jumps out. Yeah, you and in the I coverage? think the points that George was making are kind of at- articulated by Owen O'Malley as well in the S- Sunday Independent today, where he's basically saying that you know all of these small schemes, which do a lot of good. You know, we're talking about the. Uh, free GPs for kids, free uh, rollout potentially free IVF mm-hmm. um, and various other small measures end up costing billions when you put them together and he makes the point, you know, again uh, referring back to COVID, he says, so this next crisis, energy or the cost of living there's an assumption that the massive state intervention is necessary and desirable there's an assumption no one should have to change their behaviour in the face of an energy crisis even uh, reducing energy use is a state, even though uh, reducing energy mm. is a stated goal of the government and he kind of said that populist moves sometimes can form uh, mm. bad policy and he's calling on both ministers Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath perhaps to face down those calls from his ministers or their ministers uh, I'm suspect we'll find out in the next uh, 48 hours or so just how successful they've been at facing those down uh, there is lots more in the papers about the budget but also in particular about energy and also the housing crisis which we're going to get into in a little bit more depth uh, when we're back with Jared and Elaine after this break a um, couple of texts to 53106, people expressing some doubt about whether the government is truly ignorant as to how many renters there are. Uh, one person points out that you do get asked in the census whether you rent or you're a homeowner, although and then you were suggesting that they don't already, they don't have the full census figures crunched yet so that you don't always have the, those figures.
figures to hand um, yes, straight away. Yes, we recently get the initial figures for the overall population, but obviously uh, the data and that form that we all filled out earlier on this year is still being looked yeah. at and reviewed. Uh, Pat uh, is also a bit sceptical he texts 53106 to say that the government knows well the real homeless or renters figures they just hide the true numbers from us we want to talk more about uh, the number of people who may actually be homeless we know that the official figure suggests that in the region of 10,600 people are homeless or at least that number are living in emergency accommodation but a new Red Sea poll published today by the Simon Communities of Ireland suggests that the true number may be quite a bit higher Um, the Head of Policy and Communications at the Simon Community is Wayne Stanley he's on the line Um, Wayne thanks for joining us this morning uh, what is your estimate of how many people are homeless in this country? Well, sort of working that out is is part of why we, we asked the Red Sea to conduct this poll for us. Um, I think the, what we're looking to see is what's the true scale of, of the challenge that's in front of us. Now, while when we looked at it, we, we asked the initial question of... Um, do you know? Are you or do you know someone who's uh, staying temporarily with another household because they don't have uh, a tenancy of their own? And okay. uh, you know that's the initial question. And then we asked the second question: and would you describe this situation as unintended or forced? And uh, so when we looked at that, we we asked a broad question around: is it uh, is it personal experience, uh, someone in your family? Uh, friends or acquaintances and when you ask that question you get a very high uh, positive response Okay, so, uh, so this is a poll there where you survey much like most Red Sea polls you surveyed a thousand people over a week at the end of July and um, X number of people then replied to say that they're aware of one circumstance in which somebody had to um, basically be put up by a friend or a family member uh, so then you ultimately then arrive at an estimate of how many people are engaged in what you'd call hidden homelessness so what we did is we tightened our, our definition down to people who had a personal experience or a, a, a family member. So there was kind of, it would be an intimate knowledge of it and who would describe that situation as forced, unintended mm. or forced. Uh, and what we ended up was a, was a percentage of 7%, which if you look at the census data would suggest in the region of 290,000 adults. 290,000 adults are it's an extraordinary homelessness. Number. Yeah. Now, over the over the period of a year, so we, okay. we asked people to think about it over the period of a year. So, but it's still an extraordinary and frightening number. Um, what we do know, and I think the, here's where we uh, need to draw just a sort of not a note of caution, but a sort of look at the definitions that we're using. As you rightly say, the government produces a number on a monthly basis, which covers the number of people in emergency accommodation. Mm. The state themselves don't say that it covers all of homelessness. It's purely the, the number of people in, in emergency accommodation. And I think when I've been on before, we say that's a barometer of how, how we're doing in homelessness. And that number has reached a new peak. It's over 10,500 people. Yeah. But it doesn't include people who are sleeping rough or doesn't include other people yep. who are couch surfing or I suppose who are engaged in the sort of stuff that your survey is trying to capture today. Exactly. So so the reason why we need to capture that is we need to know what's the scale of the challenge in front of us. Um, uh, there are other ways of doing it, but this is the way sort of the, it, it's a it's one of the ways you can do to get, engage with the public and get a sense of, of what's happening out there. I, I think what's one of the things that we want to look at then is uh, we know from frontline experience, we also know it from national and international research, that the vast majority of people who are in those 10,500 who are uh, documented in emergency accommodation will have had an experience of hidden homelessness. So the other thing we can look at is, well, what's the difference? Why, Because like, while people are uh, entering homelessness at a far too high a rate, it's, it's not at the scale that, 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 that the poll would suggest. Mm. So, the, so that means we have to look at things like our social protection system. 
that means we have to look at things like options uh, that can slow that number down, like the Simon Holmes Prevention Bill and how those kind of factors can can help uh, slow the number of people in. But what we ultimately know is, is that really what this is a barometer of is the scale of the housing crisis and housing affordability crisis that we're in. And I think everybody knows somebody or has a family member mm. who's been affected by that. Uh, just, so, just to, to scrutinise or drill down into that figure again, yes, just because 290,000 is just an extraordinary um, headline figure. So that, that's adults over the course of a year. And obviously that's that's over the course of a year, so it's transient, so you're not suggesting 290,000 people long term. It's people who, who, for a brief period of some sort. I wonder, does, does that take into account people who may not ever even have considered themselves homeless, but who maybe have a, a gap between the, the end of one lease and the start of another, or who are in the middle of purchasing but don't get the keys in time and find themselves having to, to stay elsewhere. Does it include the, the likes of that? It, it, that's why we asked the question about uh, unintended or forced, because we because the other side to that is, would you describe, is it short term with a clear end, end date? Okay. Uh, so, to, so of those people who are in that situation, who had a personal experience or a family experience of it, um, there's a there's about a quarter of them would say that it was a short term experience where they they saw an end to it. Mm. Um, so so that's why we wanted to particularly sort of uh, capture those people and and take them out of the sample size. Yeah, uh, particularly now, striking as well is the, the 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 age and demographic breakdown because you do find that it's not dispersed equally across different age groups. No, particularly when you talk about a personal experience, it's 18 to 25 year olds uh, show a higher percentage. Interestingly, when people talk about family members. Um, it's 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 fairly even across those things. What we do see an, another thing is single people as opposed to uh, married uh, couples. Mm. People who are in a, in a marriage, um, uh, single people tend to be less. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, report that it's more likely to be. Um, uh, sorry, less likely that they will see an uh, an end date to it or a clear. And that, again, speaks to a number of things. It speaks to precarity of you know accommodation for single people and possibly where we need to look at when, when we're looking at our yeah. social protection system and the number of one-bed accommodation that, as we know, is an issue in our uh, public housing system. Mm. Uh, Wayne Stanley, Head of Policy and Communications with the Simon Community, thanks very much for joining us on the record this morning. Wayne Stanley, they're talking us through their findings of that Red Sea poll, which suggests that something in the region of 290,000 adults had, had been engaged in, in so-called hidden homelessness over a 12-month period, which is uh, really quite striking. Uh, one texter to 53106 says, Our landlady is selling up next year. We will essentially be made homeless. Me, my wife and young kids, we both have good jobs in the tech industry. Um, evidently, a text from, from one listener who doesn't have much hope about being able to either purchase somewhere new or to be able to find somewhere else to rent in the meantime. Uh, somebody else says, The government has not realised yet that the wave of landlords exiting the market is about to double, given interest rates have increased so much. This is because of the manner of taxation for small landlords uh, says that texter I'm still joined in the studio by, by Elaine Lachlan and Jared Howland Jared I'm kind of it, it all reminds you that with so much discussion about the cost of living struggles that we actually haven't heard as much as we usually would in the run up to a budget about what the government is going to be able to do with housing whether it can scale up or, or whether it has the resources to meet the challenge and there are some important housing stories in today's newspapers. I mean, one, for example, uh, says that we are underachieving on what government promised to do in relation to cost rental, that we have this year so far 228 units compared to a projected 1,366 for the year. And cost Give us those figures again. So we expect to have... So we expect 1,366 okay. and we're, we're on 228. Wow. Mm. 
That's pretty striking. It is. And cost rental, so we're all clear what it is, and it's a new concept, and many of us need to be reminded, including myself. It, it's a rental that could be between 25 and 50% of, of the market rent. So it's not just a substantially lower rent, but it's a tenancy that's very secure and up to 40 years. Mm. And it's that security with a lower rent that really gives it a, a very meaningful, strong platform for housing going forward. Uh, it's very common in continental Europe uh, for decades decades, uh, but um, even on small numbers, as an initial input to housing in this country, Mm. we're on delivering. If you take that with other infrastructure stories, uh, including uh, the the children's hospital, we have a big, uh, and of course the story you mentioned when you read out the headlines about uh, Shell leaving the country, Mm. and you look at all these infrastructure stories, you overlay them with the housing story, our capacity to deliver infrastructure, the capacity of the administrative state is just astonishingly poor and it really calls into question again the priority of this spending blitz on current spending compared to real underlying need over time. Um, someone else texted in to say I'm in my mid-40s the landlord is moving back into the rented accommodation that I'm in so I got notice and I can't afford anything else nearby I'll be living again with my parents at the end of October I wasn't considered for the likes of this survey then also two other current housemates looking like the same situation in at least uh, one case so it looks like a large number of people who are going to be set back in to to, uh, live with their parents and this person in their mid-40s I can't imagine how they feel about having to to go back to their their family home uh, that late in their life Um, Elaine uh, on the topic of of the budget and housing one thing which I'd spotted at the time and I'm glad that it's drawn attention to by page 14 of the uh, Mail on Sunday today pointing out that uh, at the end of August so for the first two thirds of the year uh, Mm -hmm. the government had intended to spend around about a billion euro on uh, capital spending in the Department of Housing and was actually only able to spend around about 65 or 70% of that, suggesting that it's not even a case of resources, that there's clearly some other blockages along the line that means that even when you do assign the money, that it can't be spent for some reason. Yes, and you mentioned at the start there, Gavin, that there has been little or no discussion in in the context of the budget around scaling up Mm. the housing uh, allocation for next year. It looks like the housing allocation can't even be spent currently. So So why bother? Why why bother? And that same report from Colin McGurk in the Mail on Sundays stating that spending was 20% less in August than it was the previous year when we should be going in the opposite direction. We should be increasing our spending because we should be increasing Mm. the level of housing output each year. But clearly that's Mm. not happening. And also 2021 is a low year to compare it against because we were in lockdown for the first four months. So other than vital infrastructure like the children's hospital, God love Mm -hmm. it, um, that a lot of other housing projects just didn't continue in, in that time anyway. So you'd already be comparing it against a pretty low base. Yeah, and we did hear earlier on this week that Cabinet was told that the Housing for All projections that Darrow O'Brien has been um, sounding for a long time now won't be met this year across practically all headings, whether mm. that's social housing or even the development of private housing. Um, Darrow O'Brien in the Dáil earlier on this week as well said that the projections were there or thereabouts, but at, at you know, 32% uh, less than forecast for this year is yeah. a, a big stretch to claim it's there or thereabouts. It, it really is. Uh, there's also an interesting piece on page three of the Business Post, uh, Jared, and when you had a chance to look at it by Killian Woods about property investors and the amount that they're spending buying up second-hand homes. Now, this was last year, so it was only in, in the middle of the process where stamp duty changes were, were undertaken. Um, but that property spe- investors, institutional funds of one sort or another, spent nearly a billion euro 
buying secondhand homes, which again just only goes to to put into context or to put into to sharp focus the amount that um, institutional investors and other foreign landlords have at their disposal versus young families or even young single people who are then being outbid when they're trying to buy their own homes. And and spare a thought for the place of property investors with billions. If you are a property property investor with billions, uh, you're so uh, harassed to find opportunity to invest that you end up buying second-hand homes. That's the stated chances of this market. I think that the the concern is. Not I know so that's that not where you're coming from, and I am and I am, buying Annie. And, yes. and I am being ironic. Yes, yeah. But if in case you, that wasn't, wasn't if, obvious, if, if the you first have money uh, that you need to invest, and you're in the property business, uh, what what this market is not delivering is a lot of new build that you can lead out on, uh, either for for sale or for for long term rental, and you are forced backwards into the second hand market, mm. which wouldn't be your primary objective in the first instance. It's a, it's a sign of dysfunction. Yeah. Um, Austin uh, points out one possible flaw with that uh, Simon uh, community poll. He says, with the greatest respect to them and their fantastic work, the survey makes no sense because if you ask, for example, 100 people who work in my company, if they know anyone uh, who works in the company who's in hidden homelessness and they all know 20 people each, uh, you'd be suggesting then that 20,000 people work in the company. Obviously, the official 10,000 homeless is a joke figure, but he's not sure that the Red Sea one uh, that they've arrived at makes any sense. And I, I suppose he's probably got a point because if you asked, you know, the, the three people in the room, do you know anyone called Aiden? And we all go, yeah, the producer just outside there. It doesn't mean that there are three Aidens in society. It means we all might know the same person, but it is a maybe an illustration of, of, of just some of the flaws in it. Um, there is a, an awful lot more. Uh, just actually before I move on, um, because I want to get to another break and want to talk about other things. Ger, um, just because you mentioned the, uh, the, the pullout of, of Shell, um, some of the pieces on the front page of the Business Post about the um, the energy crisis that we're looking into and I suppose somewhat allied to the budget, but just again on the, the infrastructural issues that we have there, we're struggling to make sure that we can keep the lights on this winter and in future winters. Yeah, I mean, the irony of of the whole energy conversation in this country is that we are one of the countries in Europe that is best placed for a very bright, very positive energy future. The problem is, uh, as our housing conversation uh, underlies, our capacity to get from where we are to where we need to be, and we have a good plan about where we need to go, by the way, you know, Eamon Ryan, decarbonisation, massive offshore capacity Mm. in, in, in wind and so forth. We have the right plan. We don't have a commensurate means of getting there time. In the meantime, there's an international energy crisis. How do you keep uh, poorer people uh, warm during the winter? That is an important part of social solidarity, even for somebody like me who wants a lot less less government. Mm -hmm. Uh, And how do you do it effectively? I don't have a problem with three payments of €200. What I have a problem... To to everyone, you have no problem if it's universal. Let let me finish. Universally provided it's clawed back under the tax code. And we talked about the revenues later and I've had conversations with people who are familiar with the revenue and, and they say to me the revenue would have the capacity that if you're over 50, 60, 70,000, whatever the threshold would be, that that could then be clawed back through, through the tax system. It would be almost impossible to target it in the giving out of the money. But it should be possible for the tax system uh, to claw a lot of it back uh, thereafter. And it's that sort of money. Because it's the difference between keeping yourself warm during the winter and having more gin and tonic money from the state. And I think to pick up on your initial point there, Jared, about our potential, you know, time and time again, it's said that Ireland could be the Saudi Arabia when it comes to wind energy. Now, Mm. whether that's true or not is up for debate but we do have massive capacity here we are lucky we are on the periphery of Europe we're an island we've plenty of sea around us with plenty of wind and gusts and gales and whatnot. 
But we only have one port on the entire island uh, that has the capacity to build offshore wind turbines and that's in Belfast. So essentially we have nowhere now if we wanted to build an offshore uh, power generation station or wind farm we would have to go either up to Belfast or Mm. across to Scotland or to mainland Europe and then that that infrastructure would have to be shipped here. Um, And we're talking about you know 20 30, uh, it's coming around the corner very quickly to even get our ports upgraded. Would we do that in time? Uh, even would we have the, the ports upgraded on the island of Ireland mm. by 2030 to even start the, the production or the development mm. of these offshore uh, wind And don't forget, plants. we're also supposed to uh, reduce carbon emissions in energy production by something in the region of 75 to 80% by the end of that decade. So we don't have the ports to help do it. It's, it's a major issue. I think I saw in this piece, is an excellent spread by Lorcan Allen on pages 16 and 17 of the Business Post. I think he suggests that uh, although Ireland does have aspirations to become the Saudi Arabia of offshore wind, I think right now as it stands, we have seven offshore turbines uh, which isn't yes, good to they're, make. they're off the coast of Arklow. And we have a glorious protest developing in Dunleary Ratdown um, against uh, of, against uh, windmills mm. off, off the coast it would impede the view. So we've all that to look forward mm. to. Is it called NIMBYism if it's offshore? Is it not in my back bay? Okay, no, I haven't <laughs> thought of that. You can, you uh, can patent that uh, one. Linda texts 53106 to say if investors can buy up whole housing estates and blocks of apartments then it's open to government to do the same. The fact that there's no real will to provide social and affordable housing she says, do you think we're fools? And somebody else says, I'm late 40s, renting, self-employed, two kids, no chance of a mortgage. If I have to leave, I'll be homeless. I don't sleep anymore, says that person. Still joining the studio, going through today's papers by Elaine Lachlan of the Irish Examiner and Public Affairs Consultant, Jared Howland. Um, there is, understandably, uh, given the way that it captured the imagination, at least online earlier this week, uh, a lot written about the cherry orchard ramming incident and some of the issues that it raises, some of the social phenomena that are summarised by those videos um, going viral and indeed a lot of first-hand testimony from people who live in the area um, who say that this is in fact not a new thing at all. It just happens that on Monday's case it went uh, viral. Um, Elaine, a few pieces dotted around the papers. Uh, Where do you want to start? What jumped out for you? Yes, Ali Bracken in the Sunday Independent has a very long piece there and she spoke to people on the ground including councillor Hazel Norton um, basically about the fact that this is not a once-off it's been going on for decades and uh, Hazel Norton mentions the fact that her own parents were involved in the neighbourhood watch back you know two three decades ago mm. when this was still an issue and remains an issue to this day um, so it's something that has been festering under the surface and the fact that it has gone viral now all eyes are on it and then we see the justice minister down there we see the commissioner down there but the community feels that they have been in some ways forgotten up until this this uh, video went viral uh, in recent days. Mm. Um, there's another piece as well in the Mail on Sunday about, and I think it kind of speaks to the the two opinions that are out there as to the response that we need to this. Um, the two opinions being either, you know, the long arm of the law, zero tolerance enforcement yes. or social outreach deal with the root causes. Yeah, yeah. and it's it centres around the Justice Commi- Committee and I know the Irish Examiner is writing about this as well on, on Thursday. Members had agreed at the start of the week to bring in uh, Garda Reps, so the GRA and other organisations to speak about the response whether further resourcing is needed and what is required to really address the issues of antisocial behaviour and criminality in areas such as Cherry Orchard. It 
by all accounts that was agreed mm. uh, at a further meeting on Thursday then in private session some members of the committee said that actually community groups the Irish Council for Civil Liberties and other organisations perhaps social workers should be invited in in tandem with the likes of the GRA okay. now uh, committee chair Fianna Falls James Lawless was slightly surprised by this attitude and he said over the past year that uh, the committee has delved very deeply into the social elements and perhaps, you know, helping out organisations or helping out both organisations that help okay. the community and the community themselves. And what requ- is required now is to look at criminality and stopping crime. Okay. So he feels that the committee has already sort of gone into the whole social deprivation and outreach for that at some depth. So there wasn't much to be achieved by going over it again. Yes. Which then resulted in the, the invite to the guards being withdrawn? Exactly, because members couldn't agree. And interestingly enough, the Fine Gael members of the committee during this private session said that uh, the committee needed to give the issue more space and time and that the meeting shouldn't happen next week because it was too soon after Cherry Orchard. Now, other members of the committee interpreted that as perhaps a circling of the wagons around Minister Helen McEntee, who mm. has been criticised for her lack of response and they were worried that maybe she might come in for harsh criticism if that meeting were to happen next week. But there certainly is two opinions as to how to address this sort of anti-social behaviour that is happening in Cherry Orchard, but in other areas in Dublin and other er- urban areas around the country. Mm. Um, the uh, James Lawless is quoted in that piece in the Mail on Sunday to say that in, in my eye it was strange position it looked like they were circling the wagons he's now referring to the, these uh, Fine Gael government colleagues on this committee uh, it looked as though they were circling the wagons around Helen McEntee why else would Fine Gael block a meeting on law and order why indeed George Helen? indeed uh, and crime uh, if if it becomes a political issue can become very toxic for a minister for justice mm. uh, or, or for a government of the day and Fine Gael are right to be wary about this I've had a sense for some time that crime ha- has been covered over by other issues that are more urgent but it's just there beneath the surface uh, as an issue uh, for people I think um, I, I don't know Terry Orchard at all but I've lived in the North Inner City for 30 years. And I can tell you, I really feel, certainly in parts of the North Inner City, around the city centre, the immediate, you know, from the Liffey northwards, it's a very under-policed, under-cared for, undermined uh, place, both by Angarda Siakona and by the City Council. Mm. You, um, you probably and, get into the bit, though, that if you, st- if you start thinking that, if you believe that those places are under-policed, and most people, I suspect, walking mm. the boardwalks or north of it will probably agree with you, that if you want to address that and you want to have a more visible policing presence, then sometimes you can almost feel more unsettling because you go, God, if there's so many guards around, it almost visually... Well, it's, it's we don't know that, that might scenario. be true because we've never seen it and never had it. And uh, there, is a, there is a point to make to uh, uh, not only around the introduction of Garda on the beat, but community Garda. And mm. I think in areas of deprivation, they make a massive impact and, and can change the way a community responds to crime and so anti-social behaviour. But also to say that social media plays a big role mm. in what happened in Cherry Orchard, mm. according to media reports, that this has been per- performed for social media, mm. which let's try and recess ourselves back to when we were 13, 14, 15, 16. Um, and of course, we had, you know, there's an element of the show off and the antic and so on. And mm. clearly this is being 
that this whole performance element is a big driver. So where are the social media companies in this? Uh, well, there's also arguably... I'd like to see them brought well, before a commission. There is also arguably a performative element to all of this as well because if, uh, as the locals and, and Councillor Hazel Dornortoon is quoted in that piece in the Sindo saying that this isn't new, that well then why did Helen McEntee choose to show up on Friday and announce a greater policing presence or more resources for the area on Friday if only... The only answer you can come up with is that, well, it's because it went viral and now it's suddenly it's dominating the agenda and therefore... It's broken through politically. Yeah. So she's out there on Friday. It's in the newspapers. We're talking about it today. Something's gotten out of the can and it'll be difficult to put it back in. Mm-hmm. Uh, still a couple of texts coming in about uh, homelessness and also about George's comments on tax. I'll do homelessness first. Um, somebody in Cork says uh, an exit survey should be done on all tenants who were issued with notices to quit since mid-2021. Uh, the question should ask where they are now and also reference how many received notices after the landlord was issued with a negative HAP inspection report. I've been through all of this, says this person who says that she's a mother of a young child and that she's 50 years old. Um, I do wonder in, in practice how you'd actually go about trying to organise a, a survey of everyone who's been handed a notice to quit. But it's, it's a fair point, actually, to, if you could follow it up or do some sort of longitudinal study, how useful that might be. Um, and on tax, uh, disgraceful analytical comments to place more tax on middle income, 40 to 60k earners. Does Jared not realise that the current huge tax on USC deductions results in a take-home pay equivalent of to those earning around 30 to 35,000 who pay little tax in USC, said this person, we're being hammered. Their contention is that they're, they're effectively no better off earning between 40 and 60 than they were earning between 13 and 35 because of the extra well, taxes the, they pay. The person who texts it into is completely right and completely wrong. They are being hammered. There's other account of their circumstances, absolutely correct. But the state of the nation's finances are such that all the tax that's been extracted from them by the hammering that they're being subjected to is not sufficient to run this country on the scale that we have become accustomed so we either get used to you pull Nordic in or, you, 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 or you, you either pull in or you pony up. Elaine? <laughs> I don't know where you I respond don't know to if that. I want to get involved in this <laughs> argument or to um, invite countless more uh, people okay, to, well then, to contribute well, to well, Without Twitter. then when drawing more people to try and look for some instantaneous cancellation of Jared Howland in the uh, 40 seconds or so that we have left, uh, what will you be looking at for specifically in the budget? What would be to you a sign of a government doing well or a government doing badly? Yeah, well I think we've spoken uh, a lot this morning about the one-off measures, whether that's for businesses or even uh, households getting the, the payments towards energy bills. But when we look longer term healthcare, we know that uh, health is already significantly over budget this year mm. and Simon or Stephen Donnelly has uh, maybe that's me thinking <laughs> of yeah. what may happen uh, <laughs> in December. Uh, Stephen Donnelly has promised a lot of new measures whether that's, you know, uh, abolishing hospital charges, mm. introduction of IVF, really costly measures so that'll be interesting to see. And then a longer term thing which I think will help with the cost of living over many years is the introduction of a childcare package and where that goes, how much uh, mm. parents will see childcare reduced by in the in the budget yeah, in the and, coming years. And, and how quickly as well? Will it be one of those immediate ones? Will it be sometime in the new year? Will it be the start of the next term? Uh, yes, all, because all we know that the, in, yeah. in budget 2022, the core funding, 221 mm. million that was announced, only came into play sure, in September. Yes. Uh, 10 seconds, Jerks, I do have to go. By dint of his absence from most of the coverage, I discern that Minister Roderick O'Gorman has played his cards carefully and well. Uh, the voice of a public affairs consultant, Jared Howland and uh, Elaine Lachlan of the Irish Examiner. Thank you both very much for talking to us this Sunday morning, talking to the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, after the news. 
Still joined the studio going through today's papers by Elaine Lachlan of the Irish Examiner and Public Affairs Consultant Jared Howland. Um, there is, understandably, uh, given the way that it captured the imagination, at least online earlier this week, uh, a lot written about the Cherry Orchard ramming incident and some of the issues that it raises, some of the social phenomena that are summarised by those videos um, going viral and indeed a lot of first-hand testimony from people who live in the area um, who say that this is in fact not a new thing at all. It just happens that on Monday's case it went uh, viral. Um, Elaine, a few pieces dotted around the papers. Uh, Where do you want to start? What jumped out for you? Yes, Ali Bracken in the Sunday Independent has a very long piece there and she spoke to people on the ground including Councillor Hazel Norton um, basically about the fact that this is not a once-off it's been going on for decades and uh, Hazel Norton mentions the fact that her own parents were involved in the neighbourhood watch back you know two three decades ago mm. when this was still an issue and remains an issue to this day um, so it's something that has been festering under the surface and the fact that it has gone viral now all eyes are on it and then we see the Justice Minister down there we see the Commissioner down there but the community feels that they have been in some ways forgotten up until this this uh, video went viral uh, in recent days. Mm. Um, there's another piece as well in the Mail on Sunday about, and I think it kind of speaks to the the two opinions that are out there as to the response that we need to this. Um, the two opinions being either, you know, the long arm of the law, zero tolerance enforcement yes. or social outreach deal with the root causes. Yeah, yeah. and it's it centres around the Justice Commi- Committee and I know the Irish Examiner is writing about this as well on, on Thursday. Members had agreed at the start of the week to bring in uh, Garda Reps, so the GRA and other organisations to speak about the response whether further resourcing is needed and what is required to really address the issues of antisocial behaviour and criminality in areas such as Cherry Orchard. By all accounts, that was agreed Mm. Uh, at a further meeting on Thursday. Then in private session, some members of the committee said that actually community groups, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties and other organisations, perhaps social workers, should be invited in in tandem with the likes of the GRA. Now, uh, committee chair Fianna Falls, James Lawless, was slightly surprised by this attitude and he said over the past year that... Uh, the committee has delved very deeply into the social elements and perhaps, you know, helping out organisation or helping out both organisations that help okay. the community and the community themselves. And what requ- is required now is to look at criminality and stopping crime. Okay. So he feels that the committee has already sort of gone into the whole social deprivation and outreach for that at some depth. So there wasn't much to be achieved by going over it again. Yes. Which then resulted in the, the invite to the guards being withdrawn? Exactly, because members couldn't agree. And interestingly enough, the Finnegale members of the committee during this private session said that Uh, the committee needed to give the issue more space and time and that the meeting shouldn't happen next week because it was too soon after Cherry Orchard. Now, other members of the committee interpreted that as perhaps a circling of the wagons around Minister Helen McEntee, who Mm. has been criticised for her lack of response and they were worried that maybe she might come in for harsh criticism if that meeting were to happen next week. But there certainly is two opinions as to how to address this sort of anti-social behaviour that is happening in Cherry Orchard, but in other areas in Dublin and other er urban areas around the country. Mm. Um, uh, James Lawless is quoted in that piece in the Mail on Sunday to say that in, in my eye it was strange position it looked like they were circling the wagons he's now referring to these uh, Fine Gael government colleagues on this committee Uh, it looked as though they were circling the wagons around Helen McEntee why else would Fine Gael block a meeting on law and order? 
Why indeed, George? Indeed, uh, and crime, uh, if if it becomes a political issue, can become very toxic for a minister for justice mm. uh, or, or for a government of the day. And Finnegan are right to be wary about this. I've had a sense for some time that crime ha- has been covered over by other issues that are more urgent, but it's just there beneath the surface uh, as an issue. Uh, for people, I think, um, I, I don't know Terry Orchard at all, but mm. I've lived in the North Inner City for 30 years. And I can tell you, I really feel, certainly in parts of the North Inner City, around the city centre, the immediate, you know, from the Liffey northwards, it's a very under-policed, under-cared for, undermined uh, place, both by Angarda Siakona and by the City Council. Mm. You, um, you probably and, get into the bit I, though that if you start if you start thinking that if you believe that those places are under police them and most people I suspect walking mm. the boardwalks or north of it will probably agree with you that if you want to address that and you want to have a more visible policing presence then sometimes you can almost feel more unsettling because you go God if there's so many guards around it almost visually well it's, it's we don't know that, that might scenario. be true because we've never seen it and never had it and uh, there is a there is a point to make to uh, uh, not only around the introduction of Garda on the beat but community Garda and mm. I think in areas of deprivation they make a massive impact and, and can change the way a community responds to crime and so anti-social behaviour. But also to say that social media plays a big role mm. in what happened in Cherry Orchard mm. according to media reports that this has been per- performed for social media, mm. which let's try and recess ourselves back to when we were 13, 14, 15, 16. Um, and of course, we had, you know, there's an element of the show off and the antic and so on. And mm. clearly this has been that this whole performance element is a big driver. So where are the social media companies in this? Uh, well, there's also arguably... I'd like to see them brought well, before a commission. There is also arguably a performative element to all of this as well because if, uh, as the locals and, and Councillor Hazel Dornortune is quoted in that piece in the Sindo saying that this isn't new, that well then why did Helen McEntee choose to show up on Friday and announce a greater policing presence or more resources for the area on Friday if only... The only answer you can come up with is that well it's because it went viral and now it's suddenly it's dominating the agenda and therefore... It's broken through politically yeah. so she's out there on Friday it's in the newspapers we're talking about it today something's gotten out of the can and it'll be difficult to put it back in mm-hmm. uh, Still a couple of texts coming in about uh, homelessness and also about George's comments on tax I'll do homelessness first um, somebody in Cork says uh, an exit survey should be done on all tenants who were issued with notices to quit since mid uh, 2021 the question should ask where they are now and also reference how many received notices after the landlord was issued with a negative HAP inspection report I've been through all of this says this person who says that she's a mother of a young child and that she's 50 years old. Um, I do wonder in, in practice how you'd actually go about trying to organise a, a survey of everyone who's been handed a notice to quit. But it's, it's a fair point, actually, to, if you could follow it up or do some sort of longitudinal study, how useful that might be. Um, and on tax, uh, disgraceful analytical comments to place more tax on middle income, 40 to 60k earners. Does Jared not realise that the current huge tax on USC deductions results in a take-home pay equivalent of to those earning around 30 to 35,000 who pay little tax in USC? Said this person, we're being hammered. They're contention is that they're they're effectively no better off earning between 14 and 60 than they were earning between 13 and 35 because of the extra well, taxes the, they pay. The person who texts it into is completely right and completely wrong. They are being hammered. There's other account of their circumstances, absolutely correct. But the state of the nation's finances are such that all the tax that's been extracted from them by the hammering that they're being subjected to is not sufficient to run this country on the scale that we have become accustomed so we either get used to you pull Nordic in or, you, 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 or you, you either pull in or you pony up Elaine <laughs> I don't know where you I respond don't know to if that. I want to get involved in this <laughs> argument or to um, 
invite countless more uh, people okay, to, well then, to contribute well, to well, Without Twitter. then when drawing more people to try and look for some instantaneous cancellation of Jared Howland in the uh, 40 seconds or so that we have left, uh, what will you be looking at for specifically in the budget? What would be to you a sign of a government doing well or a government doing badly? Yeah, well I think we've spoken uh, a lot this morning about the one-off measures, whether that's for businesses or even uh, households getting the, the payments towards energy bills. But when we look longer term healthcare, we know that uh, health is already significantly over budget this year mm. and Simon or Stephen Donnelly has uh, maybe that's me thinking <laughs> yeah. what may happen uh, in December uh, Stephen Donnelly has promised a lot of new measures whether that's you know uh, abolishing hospital charges mm. introduction of IVF really costly measures so that'll be interesting to see and then a longer term thing which I think will help with the cost of living over many years is the introduction of a childcare package and where that goes how much uh, mm. parents will see childcare reduced by in the in the budget yeah, in the coming years and, and how quickly as well will it be one of those immediate ones will it be sometime in the new year will it be at the start of the next term uh, yes, all, because all we know that the, in, yeah. in budget 2022 the core funding 221 mm. million that was announced only came into play sure, in September yes. uh, 10 seconds Jerks I do have to go by dint of his absence from most of the coverage I discern that Minister Roderick O'Gorman has played his cards carefully and well uh, the voice of a public affairs consultant Jared Howland and uh, Elaine Lachlan of the Irish Examiner thank you both very much for talking to us this Sunday morning On the Record with Gavin Riley. brought to you by PwC Sunday morning at 11 on News Talk